So, we have been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, one week at a time, in this series that we are calling Back to Life. And i got to say, recently, it's been quite an interesting string of lessons. And if you haven't been following along, I encourage you to go online and check out the past. Um, For example, last week, we got to talk about the relatively straightforward and easy-to-understand relationship between the church and the state. (laughs) (laughs) And the week before that, um, we got to talk about grounds for kicking somebody out of the church. So... It's, it's been quite a ride, and i got to say, this morning, um, I get to talk about the simple, straightforward topic of sexual immorality. <laughs> the, uh, the NIV, uh, which is the translation that we use in the, in the liturgy here, and it's what we've got scattered around here, one of the things that they do is they put little headings above all of the different passages all the way throughout the Bible, And the one that comes right before this passage, which is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 through 20, it just says sexual immorality right there at the top. I don't really like that term. Um, And I was trying to think about why that is. And here's what I've come up with. First of all, it's a very nonspecific kind of umbrella term. Um, And when you have something like that, it's very subjective. It means that different people can just take whatever they want to and put it into this bucket and say, well, sexual immorality means this, 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 and this. And then you can use that bucket and swing it around and hit people with it. <laughs> right? The other thing I don't really like about it is that it's a very negative thing. It's like we're going to talk about the list of things that you're not supposed to do. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just take that and just flip it around. And so instead of talking about sexual immorality, I want to talk about sexual ethics. Um, Instead of a list of what not to do, let's talk about how can we be sexual in a way that is holy and honorable. Before I hop into that, into this passage, I spent some time thinking just about, like, what was the sexual ethic that I grew up with? What were we taught as kids and as young adults? And what do I have with me? And as I think about that, and the more I think about it, I've got a lot of issues with it. Um, and I imagine it's similar to the ones that you grew up with. And so I just kind of want to talk through this a little bit with you. Um, the sexual ethic, I believe, is it's problematic. And it's, it's basically, it's focused around the concept or the idea of who is allowed to have sex, who is not allowed to have sex, and when are they allowed to do it? Um, and I say it's problematic because at best I think it's, that's inadequate. And at worst, I think it's harmful. How is it inadequate? Well, let's switch some words around. Imagine for a second that um, you go to school and you take a, take a class on business ethics. And what if all business ethics was about was who's allowed to conduct business with whom and when? Then you hear things like, well, do you hear that that CEO just embezzled a lot of money? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. How, who are you to judge how a man conducts business in his own company? That's not, you know, he's allowed to have business. So that's his business. <laughs> See what I mean? It's, in, it's inadequate. How can it be harmful? And I want to say this. I realize that 
all of this and what we've had comes from a good place. It comes from a desire to instill something right and something of beauty in us, this right concept. But in the push to restrict sexual activity to married couples, one of the things we've done is we have elevated the concept of virginity. How many people, uh, when you were growing up, went to some sort of a true love waits retreat or had some other sort of program like that in church, uh, in youth group or whatnot? I, and I don't want to see a show of hands on this, but <laughs> how, many, how many still had sexual relationships anyway? And how many of us internalized the idea that virginity means purity and it means holiness? And it's what it is to be Christ-like. And how many have felt shame after having sex, even if you were married? Because for so long, the focus was, if you do this, it marks you. When you, when you give up your virginity, you can't get it back. When you go down this path, it's irredeemable. And yes, God can forgive sins, but it's still going to stay with you and it's still going to affect things. And there's just been this blanket of shame that, again, probably coming a re- really from a good place, but nevertheless, that has just been dumped into our sexuality and it has caused conflict and it has caused problems. So where does this fixation on virginity come from? Um, if you look at marriage historically, you'll probably notice that until relatively recently, Marriage was essentially a business transaction that took place between two men, uh, a father and a potential husband. Right. Think about uh, from the Bible, Jacob and Laban. Jacob, he's like, I want to marry Rachel. And Laban's like, great, you work for me for seven years and you can do it. And then, of course, we know the story. He works for seven years and ends up getting stuck with Leah. And we're supposed to feel bad for Jacob. Um, (laughs) Virginity mattered to people because it made the goods more attractive. The goods being the woman um, that was being released from her father's care to the man that would become her husband. And again, I don't want to say that it's just all about hating on women necessarily. I think that there were probably a lot of fathers that thought that they were doing the right thing for their daughter by protecting them and cherishing the virginity and trying to find make sure that she was able to attract a good husband that would take care of her. But it's still kind of demeaning. Um, Here's what the Old Testament law uh, says about virginity and virgins. Deuteronomy chapter 22, some selections here. Suppose a man marries a woman, but after going to her, he dislikes her and makes up charges against her, slandering her by saying, I married this woman, but when I lay with her, I did not find evidence of her virginity. The father of the young woman and the mother shall then submit the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders at the city gate. And the elders of that town shall take this man and punish him by fining him 100 shekels of silver, which they shall give to the young woman's father because he has slandered a virgin of Israel. She shall remain his wife. That seems fair. Now, if, however, the charge is true, that evidence of the young woman's virginity was not found, then they shall bring the young woman out to the entrance of her father's house and the men of the town shall stone her to death. Okay. And what about this one? 
Same chapter. If a man meets a virgin who is not engaged and seizes her and lies with her, <clears throat> rapes her, and they are caught in the act, they, the man who lay with her shall give 50 shekels of silver to the young woman's father, and, he shall become, and she shall become his wife because he violated her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her as long as he lives. He damaged her. She's not worth anything anymore, and so he has to marry her, and he's stuck with her. And he's going to pay the father because the father lost out. That is a broken system. And in Christ, we are enjoying life in a new kingdom. We have a new life, a redeemed life. And I suggest to you today that we need a new and redeemed sexual ethic to go along with it. I do not want to build my sexual ethic on top of that broken structure. I don't want shame to be all wrapped up and intertwined in our sexuality. I want us to feel free to express it. I want us to feel free to be able to truly love. So what am I saying? Am I saying that we should just be able to do whatever we want to do? That's actually what some of the Christians in Corinth, that Paul was writing this letter that we call 1 Corinthians 2, that's what some of these people were saying. And think about it this way. Like, Jews, they had this law that they followed it religiously. Right? Abstaining from certain foods, don't work on the Sabbath, etc., etc. And they had all of these rules that they followed and that kind of distinguished them. The Christians, as we know from a lot of the other letters don't have these same restrictions. There's a lot of emphasis on you're not bound by the law. You have freedom in Christ. And some of these people in Corinth were going a little bit overboard with it. One more important piece of context here before we jump into this passage. In Corinth, at this time, prostitution was legal and it was a part of society. It was incorporated into some religious practices, but it was also acceptable generally for recreational use. So the anything goes position and the theology philosophy that was incorporated um, that that was that went along with this was incorporated into some slogans that the Corinthians used to say. Um, they're they're popular sayings. You can think of them kind of like cultural proverbs. Um, for example, from some more modern times, things like an apple a day keeps the doctor away, good fences make good neighbors, the early bird catches the worm, truth is stranger than fiction. These are just sayings that are trying to take some piece of truth and incorporate it into a very catchy phrase that you can repeat a lot. And what Paul does in this section of 1 Corinthians is he takes some of these popular slogans that the people of Corinth were saying as a way of rationalizing their anything-goes position, and he has an argument with them. And it's kind of fun, uh, and he makes a really good point with this. And so I want to just take you through this passage, through these slogans, and point out this argument that has taken place, and we can see what teaching emerges from that. So slogan number one gets right to the point. All things are lawful for me. That's what he says. Not all things are beneficial, though. Say it again, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. 
pretty straightforward. Just because you can do something doesn't mean it's a good thing for you to do. Slogan number two. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both the one and the other. All right, so in other words, food exists to be eaten. Our bodies exist to eat food, and none of this matters anyway, because it's all temporary, and God's going to destroy it all. So I have two points on this. Number one, it's important to realize that this phrase isn't talking about food. It's talking about food. It's talking about sex. And in case you were wondering, Paul cracks the code in the very next verse. He says, the body is not meant for fornication. Right? So what this phrase is really saying in a more PG way is that our bodies exist for sexual pleasure and vice versa. And none of the body stuff matters anyway, so do whatever you want. Which leads me to point number two. And this, I think, is probably one of his best rhetorical moves here. He takes the slogan and he flips it on its head. And the, the rhetorical symmetry of it, I think, sometimes gets lost. And so, if you'll permit me, I'm going to rearrange some words a little bit so you see it. I think that these verses should read like this. You say, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. But I say, the body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God has resurrected the Lord and will resurrect us. In other words... Our bodies matter a great deal to God. They are for him. And instead of being destroyed, they're going to be resurrected. That's huge. And to me, that's the crux of this passage. And I think this is the bedrock for our new sexual ethic. Our bodies matter to God. And they're slated for resurrection. So we need to respect our bodies. Now, have you ever noticed this? Have you ever done this? Yeah, let's say you have one day and you do a lot of physical work that day, maybe out in the yard or playing with kids or whatever. And the next morning you just wake up and you're sore. And you might use the phrase, my body hurts. Or maybe, maybe, You've experienced this. You've been eating well for a while. You've been working out consistently. You've been getting good sleep. And you walk in and you're going to say, you know what? I feel good. You notice the difference there? My body hurts. I feel good. What's up with that? When things aren't going the way that we want them to, we would like to disassociate from our bodies. Right? It, it becomes this thing that we're burdened with instead of a major part of who we are. When God created humans, the story goes, he formed the man out of the earth and breathed his spirit into him. What does this say? It says that a human being is the combination of flesh and spirit. We're both. We are just as much fleshy bodies as we are spirits. And we need to value our bodies. We need to take care of our bodies. We need to love our bodies. And we need to find out how we can glorify God with our bodies. You know what else? We should do the same thing for other people too. How often do we reduce another person 
to just a body meant for food. Old, young, fat, thin, cute, gross, hot, not. Like, what do you see when you look at another person? Do you see a whole person? Body and spirit beautifully reflecting the image of God? Or do you see a body? This level of respect for the other person as a whole person must be at the core of our sexual ethic. Sex is the most intimate connection between two people. It's physical. It's emotional. It's mental. And yeah, it's spiritual. And in order for that level of intimacy to take place, it must be entered into by two consenting people. Two people that see each other as equals, that respect each other as whole persons who both willingly enter into this relationship. And if that's not the case, then something is not holy about that relationship. See, when the power dynamic is off, what's happening is that one person is not seeing the other as a whole person. Instead, they see an object that's there to be used for their own gratification. This is where manipulation and coercion begin to appear. This is when someone can be taken advantage of. This is not love. This is not of God. Consent and respect must be at the core of our sexual ethic. All right, back into the passage. Paul goes on to get to the very specific issue that he wants to talk about with this Corinthian church. And I want to remind you, prostitution was legal and a part of society back then. And Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Ever. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said the two shall be one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now I can understand how you can read that and and take that to mean that We are the purified children of God, living a new life as part of the body of Christ. And when we go and have sex with a dirty, sinful prostitute, that we pollute the whole body of Christ. And we insult and corrupt the pure ideal of marriage and relationships. I can understand how you will get that meaning. But... I think you would be sorely missing the point. Let me help. Is prostitution a consensual relationship? How about a silly example? When you go to the Burger King and you order a hamburger and you pay the agreed upon price, does the person in the kitchen make that hamburger out of a place of love for you? (laughs) 
Or perhaps this person just loves hamburgers so much that they truly want to spread the life-changing love of hamburgers to as many people as possible. And how wonderful is it that they have found a way to make a living doing that? Or is this just a person that wants to have a job so they can make rent? This person doesn't care about you. They just want to get paid. And by the way, like Paul said earlier, I'm not talking about food. (laughs) Having sex with a prostitute is not a consensual relationship. Prostitution is one of the oldest, most well-known ways of exploiting women. This leads me to slogan number three. And this one comes from the Bible. It is said, the two shall be one flesh. As in, when you copulate with the prostitute, you are joining your bodies. But anyone, here's the rebuttal, but anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, which is the more significant joining? Which one should change you the most? How can a person who has been joined with God, who has the Spirit of God within them, then go and dehumanize another person in this way. When you fail to see the whole person, when you're looking only at the body, a body to gratify you, when you attach a price to that, you are stripping a person of their humanity. And that is not of God. Verse 18. Verse 18 in the NIV says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, the NIV is a really good translation, and we are so spoiled to have so many good choices for English translations of the Bible. And it is a non-constructive conversation to try to talk about which translation is better, which translation is worse, which one is the right one or the wrong one. They're all really good. They're all different. However, the NIV in this verse inserts a word that is not present in other English translations, although in some it is. More importantly, it is not present in the original Greek. And the Greek word that is missing here is the word other, as in all other sins a person commits are outside the body, the way that that phrase really reads is all sins a person commits are outside the body, which is really kind of a, makes for a strange sentence until you realize that what we actually have right here is slogan number four. And it goes like this. Paul says, shun fornication. And the Corinthians say, Every sin that a person commits is outside the body. To which Paul says, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. Point, counterpoint. It's the same argument and the same point all over here again. What we do with our bodies matters. We can choose to honor God with our bodies. Or we can sin with our bodies. And again, I want to point out what this does not say. This does not say that sexual sin is worse than any other sin. It does not say that sex lingers with you in a way that other sins do not. It does not mark or scar you permanently. 
we are forgiven and washed and made new by the blood of Christ. What this passage does say is that our bodies matter. What we do with them matters. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, I like to pay attention to and point out the times when Scripture is addressing a group of people, a collective, the body of Christ, the church, the people of God. Because I think a lot of times we have a tendency to take messages that were given to groups and individualize them and say, this is what God is saying to you personally. This is not one of those times. The word here that Paul uses for body, the Greek word, is the one that literally means your individual physical body. Each one of you, individually, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Each one of you, individually, your body has been bought by God. We are called to honor God with our bodies. And to do that, we have to love and respect other people as whole people. And we need to treat our sexuality like the beautiful thing that it is. We don't want to slander it with shame. We don't want to use it to dehumanize other people. I've talked a lot this morning, so let me just wrap up. Um, I suggest that we need to build a new sexual ethic. It's not really new. I could put new in scare quotes the way I did food, but um, it's not new. It's old. It's, I guess it's like Jesus. A new commandment I give you, but it's an old commandment. Huh. It's the same one. Love each other. We need a new sexual ethic, one that's not built on shame, one that's not built on the control of others. One that is really and truly built on consent and respect and viewing others as whole people, as image bearers of God.